0: This is what the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello friends, welcome back. Today I will continue this talk on money, a biblical perspective on money. Before I get into that, I'd like to remind you that if you have any questions for me, any thoughts you'd like to share, any issues you'd like me to talk about, please feel free to send me an email at, ancientpaths at cantrell.cc. I would love to hear from you, and pretty regularly listeners will write in with some thoughts or just encouraging words. I very much appreciate it. Before I talk about um, money again, I'd like to give credit once again to David Pawson. Much of what I'll say in the order in which I say it comes from David. And he's a great teacher, and you can find him on YouTube. And I think he's got a podcast now. It was a little out of date before. And I want to remind you, just as a review, that the purpose of this teaching is discipleship. It's not just so that we can talk about money and move on. It's so that we can grow closer to the Lord and so that we can obey what he's commanded and we can have the mind of God. And money touches so many aspects of human life and desire. We really need to line ourselves up with his will, with his mind, with him and his attitude towards money. So we'll look at a biblical perspective on money. And I'll remind you of two stories that I started in the first of this series. One is about an American pastor who went to a local Russian church, and he'd been supporting the local church here in Russia with money from the United States. And he came over here, and the local church had made a decision that he was not in agreement with. And when he sat down with the leadership, he said, Do you know the golden rule? And they all nodded and said, Yeah, they do. They were a little confused. And then he said, He who has the gold rules. It still shocks me that a Christian pastor would say such a thing to people that were under his care and that he had been supporting and encouraging. The other story I started with is about Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he was in uh, Nazi Germany and took quite a few of his seminary students out to dinner and a concert in the city and a train ride. And one of the seminary students remarked to him that it must have been quite expensive for that evening out. And he turned and he said, Money is dirt. I often come back to that. Money is dirt. It's an invention by man that makes life a little bit easier. And to God, it really is like dirt. It can be used for certain things, but it'll make you dirty, too. (laughs) So let's have uh, God's perspective on money. Money talks. Money has power in this world. You can go back and listen to what I said in the first episode of this series. But money is neither good nor evil. It cannot be taken as proof of a man's sin or his virtue. So we need to keep in mind that God has his own perspective, and the ways of God are not the same as the ways of men. So as I move on through this series, today I'll be talking about getting money, and then later I'll talk about having money and spending money and giving money. So today we'll talk about getting money. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said, Get all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. I'll return to that quote as we go through the rest of this series. Get all you can, save all you can, give all you can. So today we'll be talking about getting money and what the Bible says about how to get money. And what is a biblical perspective on getting money, having income? And first off, of course, I really shouldn't have to say it, but I will. (laughs) Any employment that is legal and holy is for the believer. But any work that you might do for money that evades the law, that's not for the Christian. And any employment, any source of income that is immoral... That's not a possibility for a Christian. But we'll look at eight common ways that people can get money. And I imagine there are quite a few more ways. But these eight are the ones that I'll mention. And these are, I would say, biblical in the sense that they are in the Bible. I recently spoke on this topic in Romania. And I asked the people there at the meeting to list the ways in the Bible that people can get money. And they made a list, and they actually said most of what's on my list uh, here. Like they said, borrowing and working and investing in money, inheriting money, charity. They went through quite a few things, and I said I was very surprised at the end that they hadn't listed one of the top ways in the Bible for people to get money. And I could see their quizzical looks on their faces. Uh, And I said, stealing Stealing money is one of the top ways in the Bible to get money. In that sense, you can say stealing is biblical, I guess. (laughs) But a Christian must never, never steal. Uh, It's one of the top ten commandments in the Old Testament, and it's all through the New Testament. And stealing is stealing, whether you have taken a lot or a little. And stealing is stealing whether you steal from a private person or an organization, like the state or your church, even. And stealing is stealing whether the person from whom you steal is rich or poor. Boy, those are the temptations to justify ourselves and say, well, it's just a small thing I'm going to take, or they won't miss it, or they're so rich they don't deserve all that and I deserve a little bit of it. Those are very common secular ways of thinking about stealing. It's actually stealing. And a Christian, a follower of God, one who walks in the ways of God, must never steal. So the first biblical way to get money is stealing. It's in the Bible, and the Bible says don't ever do it. And if you have stolen something, I encourage you to return that plus another 20% or so. That would be great. Repent and have actions in line with repentance. And if you need to apologize to somebody for stealing, humble yourself because you took something from them, then go to that person and humble yourself. Jesus said that those who hear his words and put them into practice are like a man who built his house on a rock. But if we hear his words and we don't put them into practice, then we're like a man who built a house on sand. And I think some of you right now are hearing the word of God for you. And you need to put it into practice. You need to stop stealing. The second way that people can get money is exploiting. And that is profiting from the needs or the weaknesses of other people. And that can include artificially taking a profit above what's a normal profit. You see that sometimes in emergency situations. People will just jack up the prices of things just so they can make more money. You can run up prices during emergencies, like I said. You can exploit weaknesses like drugs or gambling to take advantage of someone's weakness or their addiction or their sin. And when we exploit another person, that's a sign that we love ourselves more than we love the other person. That we're trying to use them to gratify ourselves, get more money out of them. So exploitation is is an expression of self-love and a complete disregard for what's good for that other person. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist said something about this in Luke chapter 3. He said to the Roman soldiers when they were asking about what must we do to show repentance, and he said, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be satisfied with your wages. So... Don't exploit. Don't take advantage of other people's weaknesses. Try to help them get past their weaknesses. Be on their side. Don't be against them. Another way that people can get money is by gambling. And we see a few examples of that in the scriptures, but it's a way that human beings get money. And uh, I like what David Pawson says about gambling. It is non-productive and it's non-useful. The temptation is to get rich quickly with no effort. There's no work. There's no improvement in circumstances. There's no value that you bring. All you got to do is buy a ticket or place a bet, and you want to get rich quick. Gambling includes an artificial risk, which is very interesting that people want to gamble their money, risk their money, but it's artificial It's not a real risk. You put yourself in a situation where you take on a risk that's not based in any reality other than the circumstances of the gambling itself, and you're going to gain at someone else's loss. That's what gambling is. Whatever money you win in gambling came from someone else's pocket. And like I said, you want to get something for nothing, and that's actually very unscriptural to try to get something for nothing to get money quickly for no other effort. And I heard that with the lotteries, a person is just about as likely to win the lottery with a ticket as without a ticket. <laughs> the odds are so much against winning that you might as well not buy the ticket and then sit in hopeful expectation that you will win. At least you have the hopeful expectation, but you haven't lost the money. <laughs> uh, quite a few years ago, I read a book that's been real influential to me. It's called From Dawn to Decadence by a French historian, Jacques Barzun. And he writes about Western civilization as it moves into decadence and becoming a decadent society. A decadent society isn't necessarily one that is going to collapse and disappear, but it is one that is inward-focused and selfish and trying to gratify itself. And he said that historically... One sign of a decadent society over the ages, when these great societies are moving into decadence, one of those signs is state-sponsored gambling. And that really stood out to me, because right now many Western states have state lotteries. And he said that's a sign of a decadent society, one that is losing its heart and its soul. And I thought about why that would be. He doesn't talk about why that would be. But I thought that when the state sponsors gambling, the state is encouraging its citizens to live in a fantasy world. And many of us have had these thoughts. Oh, if I only had a million dollars, I could do this or that. And you live in a fantasy world. It's not a real world. And gambling can become an addiction quite easily. And for the state to sponsor addictive behavior, that's terrible. And also, state gambling, state lotteries, are often a very heavy tax on the poor. It's very often the poor who will gamble more in state lotteries because they want to get rich quick, and the state will actually misrepresent to the poor that there's a great opportunity for them to get a lot of money when there's a very small opportunity to get anything back. So the poor pay their money in, and then that money gets redistributed out through the society and It's a very heavy tax on poor people. So gambling, like everything else that I've talked about so far, stealing, exploiting, cuts against love. How can we love God if we put our faith in chance and luck? How can I love my neighbor if I want to get something out of him but give nothing in return? Proverbs 13.11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. And this is the danger of gambling. We want to get that money quick, uh, but it'll go away quickly, too. Well, I'll tell a story. I met a guy in the United States many years ago. He had been a very poor guy, and he was in a truck. He had been hitchhiking, uh, asking for rides with these big trucks, truckers that drive across the United States. And the truck was in an accident, and he broke his back. And he had a settlement from the insurance company. I believe it was $680,000 tax-free. So he didn't pay tax on that. And he went from having practically nothing to having $680,000 in the bank. And when I met him, it was several years later, and all of that money was gone. It was all gone. He bought a house for cash. Well, there goes $150,000, dollars right there. And he bought cars, and then his friends wanted to borrow because they had all these ideas. And then he spent it on bad living, uh, drinking and partying and things like that. And the money was gone. And he still had the house, but it was falling apart because he had no money to keep the house up. And he was renting out some rooms in the house just to have a little cash flow. But the people he was renting to were also in very bad circumstances. And that wealth that was gained hastily was gone. And I dare say he was in a worse situation than he was when he started the whole thing, because now his back is broken and he can't work, and he lost it all. I've actually met several people like that, who came into large amounts of money quickly, and then it was gone pretty quickly, too. So we got to be careful, especially about gambling. That's much deeper than just having a little bit of fun, There's a lot more going on there, a lot of self-love, self-concern, and being inconsiderate of the needs of others and where that money's coming from. The fourth item on this list is borrowing. And we see quite a bit about borrowing in the scriptures. Romans 13.8, I think this will be familiar to many of you, says, Let no debt be remaining except the debt of love. And in Proverbs 22, 7, we read, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Scripturally, it is possible to get money by borrowing that money, promising to pay it back. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that if we do lend money, we shouldn't charge interest when we lend money. Boy, that really flies in the face of modern thinking, doesn't it? Uh, Just yesterday, I had a conversation with a friend of mine. He's a believer and he, a few years ago, uh, had an idea for a business and he prayed about it and he felt very strongly that the Lord wanted him to avoid borrowing money. But the temptation to make money in this business was so great that he borrowed a significant amount of money to start up this business. But then the business didn't work out and he couldn't pay that money back. And he's had years of legal trouble, and he's also got the sorrow of knowing that he was disobedient and that he still suffers the consequences of that disobedience. So pray. Pray if God wants you to borrow money. Now, David Pawson makes an interesting distinction, and I don't know exactly what words to hang on it, he makes a distinction between borrowing money and being in debt, though we often use those words uh, in the same way. If I've borrowed money, I'm indebted to somebody else. He says that it is definitely allowed to borrow money in Scripture. And Pawson says that when you borrow money, it becomes a debt as soon as you get behind on the payments. So I don't know what the distinction is in the English language. If you borrow money, but you're paying back according to the agreement that you have with the person who lended you the money, well, then everything's fine at that point. Uh, You've had an agreement. Somebody else has some extra money, and they're going to loan it to you, so that'll help you. And then you pay it back, and you have an agreement. But if you stop being able to pay the debt back, if you get behind on the payments, then you've moved from this agreement on borrowing. You've moved into stealing, Because then you owe somebody something, you've taken money from them, and you're not giving it back to them. And that's stealing. And many of us would not think that way. You might say, well, I borrowed money from the bank, but I can't pay it back. Well, you're stealing from the bank. Where did the bank get the money? It's the deposits of the other members of the bank. And you're taking their money. So we have to make a distinction, I think, between just borrowing money and paying it back according to our agreements and actually getting behind on the payments. And yet I want to say that borrowing, even though it is allowed in Scripture to borrow money, borrowing money makes it a lot more likely that you will fall behind on your payments, that you will fall into debt. Circumstances can change. The terms of borrowing can be very harsh and troublesome. Credit cards, especially if you don't pay off within a month, the interest rate can be huge, 20 25%. That's just a huge amount of interest. And a lot of people don't read the small print on a credit card, and they just keep making payments and fall further and further behind. All they're doing is paying off the interest. They're not actually paying off the debt, the principal of what they've borrowed. Also, borrowing can make us more of the world. And this was my case. Uh, I had borrowed a lot of money when I was buying and selling houses many years ago when I lived in the USA. And the normal way that people do this is you borrow money from a bank to buy a house, you get the house up and running, then you rent the house out, and the rent from that house pays the bank. And if you're lucky, you have a little bit of extra coming in. And then you can use that house and that income to borrow more money to get another house <laughs> and so I had borrowed quite a bit of money and all of my houses were generating income but I had to keep managing this flow of money to keep paying off these mortgages that I had on these houses and I felt like my hands were deep in the world like my fingers were deep in the culture and uh, not too long before God called me to Russia he called me to sell everything and get out of debt. And I remember when I did that, the debt was gone and I had so much freedom. I didn't have to think anymore about how to manage the flow of money and and keep up with all the accounts and all of the different mortgages. Now Paulson would say, and I tend to agree with him, a mortgage on a house, that's when you borrow money from a bank to purchase a house, isn't really a debt in the sense of falling behind on your payments. Uh mortgage is where you agree with a lending institution to borrow that money and then pay it back over time. Uh, it's only a debt, according to Pawson, when we fall behind in those payments. And credit card balances can be a trap. That's the thing. There's that word. It's a snare. And get us caught in the ways of the world. So I encourage you, avoid debt. Avoid borrowing debt. Much of Western civilization right now is based on living above your means and putting things on a credit card or borrowing money to get things that you can't really afford. And I know that it's finding its way into some of the poorer countries in the world, and people in those cultures don't understand the way the system works, and they sort of think, well, this is free money. All i got to do is go sign a piece of paper, and I've got all this money and they don't think about how the interest payments are going to pile up and how you can get in debt. It just feels like free money and free stuff. That's such a trap. It's a snare, and it hurts people. It really does. The fifth way that we see in the scripture of getting money is investing, and that's not immoral. Uh, Jesus himself said in Matthew 25, he told stories about a a servant who should have invested and should have gotten interest on what the master had entrusted to him. And investing is basically putting your extra money into a bank and then letting other people use it for their benefit. And then you share in the benefit that you've given them. I think that's a pretty simple way to do it. I know of a private investment bank in Africa. A group of believers uh, needed some money to start businesses, and so they just started their own investment bank. (laughs) Uh, Perhaps it sounds like a bigger thing than it really is. It's just a bunch of people that come together. They pool their money. They have a little extra money. And then they will loan that money out to brothers and sisters who want to start a business. And there are terms of how they're going to repay that. And quite a few small businesses have been started as these Christians have pooled their resources together to help one another. So that's what it is. Investing is putting your extra money into some circumstance and let other people use it and then you share in that benefit. Now it is possible for investing to be like gambling. If we're speculating, especially playing the markets, the financial markets or buying stocks and hoping that they'll go up. I have been tempted in that way. I haven't really fallen into it, but it's very possible that investing can be like gambling. We're going to play the market, and there's a word, you're playing the markets, and you're trying to get something for nothing. Uh, I have invested in companies that I respect, and I hope they do well, but I'm not going to try to play the market and sort of speculate on the market, and then it really gets to be like gambling. It seems from the Bible that it's reasonable for a Christian to save up for the future by investing, but not speculating. Uh, and any investments that we make should really be morally sound, scripturally good, and socially useful. There's another way to get money in the Bible, and that's inheritance. Inheriting money, that's a way people get money, scripturally. And, and it's very, very clear in the Bible that it's fine to inherit wealth. Actually, that's a part of God's character, is providing an inheritance for his people. So inheriting from your parents or from some family member or even from somebody that you know who has decided to give you some of their wealth when they die, that's quite all right. That's really a great blessing. However, inheritance can divide families. I think many of us have seen that. There can be arguments about houses and furniture and bank accounts. And in that case, it'd be better not to have the money than to have a broken family. I know a friend of mine here in Russia who... His parents died, and and he shared in an apartment with his sister. And his sister was living in the apartment, and he was off doing his Christian mission work. And she began to demand that he give up his half of his inheritance just because he already had money, and he was doing well, and she was in the apartment. And the family just started to get broken apart. He and his sister were having trouble talking about this. She was really demanding that he give up. His inheritance. And I will say that an apartment in a major Russian city is uh, not a cheap thing. It was a significant amount of money that she was really demanding. And he and I talked about it, and he was very torn up and unsure what to do because he knew that his relationship with his sister was just getting ruined because of this. And we talked about it. What are God's priorities? How does the Lord see it? What is God saying to him? And he struggled in prayer, really struggled emotionally. And finally he decided to surrender his inheritance to her so that there would be peace in the family. He chose peace over the value of half of that apartment. And I really respect him for it. And God has provided for him as he chose the better way. So be careful about inheritance. Be careful about fighting and divisions. But it is also very clear that God often provides for our needs through inheritance. And that brought to mind something that Peter wrote in his letter in the first chapter. And I'll read this section because the inheritance is in the middle of some really good lessons that Peter has for us. Starting in verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us a new birth, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials, and these trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Amen. That's through verse 7 of first Peter chapter 1. Amen. It starts with praise and it ends with praise. And Peter is saying that we have been given a new birth. We're born into a new family. We have a new father, a new daddy. And he has prepared for us an inheritance. We're going to inherit something from our new dad, our heavenly father. And that something is never going to perish or spoil or fade. And it's kept in heaven. We're moving towards this inheritance, this wonderful inheritance that is unlike any inheritance here on earth. And we can rejoice in that. We can be really happy about it, even though here we go through all kinds of difficult trials and hardships. And all of these come to us, Peter says, so that our faith, which is of greater worth than gold, it's of greater worth than anything we could inherit here on earth, that faith may be proved genuine. Amen. It can be purified. Our faith is purified by the hardships we face. We go through hard things now, but there is a wonderful, wonderful inheritance up ahead waiting for us, those of us who abide in him and press on and finish this race. Amen. Okay, number seven on my list, how to get money. Scripturally, ways to receive money, and that is getting charity when somebody gives us charity. In some cultures, that word charity sort of has a negative connotation. And I want to be careful about that. I don't mean it in a negative way. There are times when people need help. I've been in times when I really just needed help financially. And people provided financial help to get me through. There are times when as much as we want to, we're just not able to earn the money to live. And Jesus said, you will always have the poor. That was in Matthew 26 when he was anointed at Bethany. The poor are always going to be around. And those poor need help. And God wants us to help. So the question is, when is it suitable for us to accept a gift? I'm talking about us getting money. Later I'll talk about giving. But right now I'm talking about how we can get money. And for us, when is it okay to accept gifts? we have to be mindful of the dangers. If we live on charity, that can create a dependency. If it goes beyond the immediate circumstances and just becomes the way we live, we expect people to give us money and we stop trying to earn our money. And that can be called, has been called a poverty mentality. I'm poor. I can't do anything. Everybody owes me something to help me get through things. So, I'm just going to wait and demand that people give me things. Paul, at times, lived on support. Jesus did as well. And Paul also was paid for his work. And sometimes he was paid for his work from another source. Now, we'll come back to this when we talk about giving. But we need to be real careful about receiving charity, that we don't fall into the idea that we deserve it. To receive charity for most of us is to get us through the hard times so that we can move on and start earning money so that we will then become a blessing to people. Well this leads us now to number eight the last on the list though I've got a bit more to say about this and that is working for money and this is the basic principle for Christians to earn money. Getting money from those who benefit from your labor or your activity. Working with your hand or your head, you provide some service or some benefit, and then people give you money for that. Not only is it a principle for Christians to earn money, it's really basically a Christian duty to earn money if you have the capacity to do so. Now, sometimes, and actually often in a marriage, one spouse, and often it's the wife, will stay at home while the other, the husband is the, quote, bread winner. But I want to say a lot of what I do, I get paid for my work, but I don't get paid from the direction in which my work goes. And let me clarify that. Uh, Much of my work is helping other people serve orphans or disabled people. And the orphans and the children with disabilities, they're not going to pay my salary, uh, But God moves in the hearts of other people who send money to help me do that work. So in that sense, I'm quite confident that I am working for the Lord and he's providing income from a different direction. But I've got to work for it. I can't just sit here and wait for money to come flowing in. God wants me working. And this would be the same way in a marriage when the wife is at home and she's working, working hard. It's remarkable how hard a stay-at-home mother works. And then it's right for her then to receive that income, to receive the benefits from some other source. God will provide for that family, so it's good to work. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. That's a very good scripture. And it's a very good one, especially for people who like to gamble, want to get rich quick, or who think they deserve charity from other people. This may have been an issue in Thessalonica that Paul was addressing. Instead of trying to get money quick or get money from people, extort people, exploit people's weaknesses, you make it an ambition to lead a quiet life. And just make your money so that you can win the respect of people outside of the church and and not be dependent on anybody. Paul himself worked with his own hands. You remember he made tents. And he did that to send a message to the churches that it's good to work. He accepted support from time to time, and it was right for him to do that. But he worked. And I remember when I was just starting university, I got a job at a gasoline station, a fuel station, petrol station. And I just sat in a little booth and took money and occasionally would go out and read the pumps. And and I was thinking, man, here I am. I'm better than this. I'm just working at a gas station. And I talked to my dad about it, I told him how bad I was feeling that I should be doing more with my life than just working in a gasoline station. And he said to me, It is always honorable to work. That's good fatherly advice. It's always honorable to work. Doesn't matter what that job is, what you're doing, it's a good thing. It's honorable. And people will watch you as a Christian as you do your work. They'll respect you for doing your work well as unto the Lord. And then you're not dependent on anybody. And as God provides, you'll even have some extra to help other people. Amen. That's God's will. We come to a scripture that (laughs) uh, can kind of stick in people's minds here. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, If a man will not work, neither shall he eat. That is, uh, you know, that's pretty tough language, actually. I think in Thessalonica there was an issue with laziness. And let me say this scripture in a different way. Paul said, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. So we could say it this way. If a man can work and refuses to work, a Christian should not feed him. What about that? And I'll say that this takes discernment and it takes wisdom. But if a person can work then it may be better to help them find a job rather than to give them money. Certainly within the church, this is true. It's a hard truth. If a person won't work, refuses to work, then don't feed him. you got to get out there and work. God doesn't want us to live off of other people. He doesn't want us to beg. It's been called financial cannibalism. God wants us to work for our money, with our hand, with our head, and exchange something of equal value for that wage or salary, whatever the source of income that you have. That's God's will for his people. If you can work, do it. Earn enough for yourself, your family, and for people that you can help so you're not a burden on anyone. You're not dependent on anybody else. And Now I come to a section that has been very welcome as I speak overseas and the local pastor is translating my message on money. God's perspective on working and earning a salary applies to Christian work. Those who work for the Lord in preaching, teaching, and evangelizing, they should get paid for that spiritual work. The Bible is so very, very clear about this. Religious leaders are working in spiritual things and they deserve to be paid they deserve a wage luke chapter 10 jesus said a laborer is worthy of his hire in first timothy chapter 5 paul says the elders in a congregation who labor in preaching and teaching are worthy of a double wage preaching is speaking to the unconverted and teaching is speaking to the converted and they're worthy of double wages In Galatians 6, verse 6, Paul says, It is right, if you're grateful for spiritual ministry, to reward those in material ways. That's with money. That's what Paul says. If you're receiving spiritual help, spiritual value from someone, then it's perfectly fine. It's exactly what should happen, that they would get a wage. They would receive some money for their work. I'm reminded of the old days. When pastors would travel around in the United States and local people didn't have a lot of money, but they did have things they could pay the pastor. And often that would be a chicken or some eggs or some meat, some vegetables. The pastor would pass through the area and preach the word of God and he'd get paid by the locals. They'd invite him over for a big meal and send him on his way with a bag full of food. It's good to support your pastors. It's good to support your elders, those who teach and preach and evangelize. And there are some cultures, where I have been, where they don't think that. They think a pastor doesn't do anything of any value, and they're not earning anything, so they just need to be poor. But that is not God's perspective. A laborer is worthy of his wages. Amen. If you disagree with me, I want you to go into the scripture and check that what I'm saying is true. This is not Mike's opinion. This really is what God has revealed. It's good to provide for the needs of those who labor in spiritual work. Now, understanding this would really help to remove this idea that people in some spiritual work should, quote, live by faith, unquote. Everybody else gets a salary, but people in spiritual work just live by faith, Because that thinking divides people into spiritual and ordinary workers. But we're all in the same category in God's eyes when it comes to work and money. We're not dividing people up into the spiritual ones and everybody else. So let's be very careful. We need to pay our pastors. And all of us need to be working and give ourselves to the work that God has set before us so that we can be a blessing to others and we can earn the respect of those outside of the church and so that we won't be dependent on anybody. That's God's will. And I'll close with a quote from Colossians chapter 3. "'Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ.' Amen. That's God's word for his people. Whatever we do, we do it well from the heart. We work fully, fully invested. And we work not as working for men, but we work for God, as if we're working for God himself. And we know that from God we're going to receive this inheritance as a reward as we give ourselves to the work that he set before us. Because we're not serving men, and we should never serve ourselves. We're serving God. We're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, next time, I'm going to move on to having money. We talked today about a biblical perspective on getting money. And next time, we'll talk about having money. How do we have it and hold it and keep it? We'll talk about, (laughs) this should be interesting, the health and wealth gospel and what Thomas Aquinas had to say about that. So until next time, my friends, I pray that you'll continue to hear the voice of God and that you'll walk in his ways because the ways of God are good and they always lead to peace for the soul. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening and God bless you all.